This morning's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 4 to chapter 7. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of God, of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamin Wright ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes, torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the men entered into town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled from the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her son said, 
um, her, said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and led it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any other priest who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on this threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and his, its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Hath the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die and were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When, did? when Israel's gods dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, 
Get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this, and then returned that same day to Akron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Akron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. Well, thank you very much. So uh, one iconic movie from my youth is the one that you can see there on the screen, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. In my humble opinion, the uh, original and best of the Indiana Jones movies, uh, especially not that last one that was truly awful. And just to be clear, this film is all about the Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark. That was a point I needed to make to my parents uh, when I first watched it as a kid. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this film. Um, the basic plot is that the Nazis are looking for the Ark of the Covenant because they want to use it as a sort of secret weapon to try and alter the whole course of World War II. And of course, it's up to uh, Indiana Jones, the hero, to stop them. But what I'd really like to pick up on this morning is the fact that this film shows a very common misconception about God. 
So if we're Christians, of course, we believe that God is powerful, which is true. But basically, that whole film is about people who are trying to harness God's power to use it for their own ends. That, of course, is why the uh, Nazis want the Ark. And I think this is actually how many people around us view religion. So they pray for God's power to heal them, maybe, uh, or to try and solve their problems. Uh, They maybe go to some kind of church or some kind of temple, maybe, and they try and make offerings to God to try and get God's power to work for them in their lives, uh, to maybe bring them success at work, uh, perhaps success at a job interview, uh, or to help them pass their exams. And of course, um, some of this is not necessarily wrong. It's good to bring our, requ- our requests and prayers to God, and God wants us to do that. However, we need to be very careful, though, that we are not trying to control God, to conform him to our own image, to get him to do what we want, to bring God on board with our agenda, uh, to get God to work for us rather than really seeking God for who he is, a loving and personal God, and a God who wants to have a real relationship with us. And all of this really takes us into our passage this morning, where I hope we will see that God is God, and we need to relate to him as the God that he has revealed himself to be in the Bible. This is an unusual passage, of course, uh, maybe lots of uh, weird things in it uh, as we... uh, Heard it uh, read, all that sort of gold tumors and uh, gold rats business, um, for instance, uh, all sounds fairly weird. But to both the Israelites and the Philistines here find, find out that they can't control God or use him, but actually that they need to relate to him as God, which is what I hope we will see as well. So then, I'd uh, like us to look at this passage in three sections, and the uh, first of them is the danger of manipulating God. And I think uh, this is really in chapter 4, which was read for us. Uh, So in in, uh, verse 1 there, looking at it, we're told that the Israelites go out to fight the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were basically the sea peoples who actually lived on the coast of Israel in uh, what is now actually uh, Gaza. And uh, then we read that the Israelites are defeated. So in verse 2, the Philistines deploy their forces against the Israelites. The battle spreads and 4,000 of the Israelites are killed. In verse 3, the elders of Israel mount an inquiry. Uh, They basically ask the right question, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? But the problem is that they don't really wait around for the right answer. Now, this is the question that the leaders of Israel ought to have been asking at this point. Uh, Previously, in the book of Judges, for instance, we've seen that whenever Israel is defeated, it's because the conduct of the people uh, has displeased God. Uh, They've been breaking his covenant. Uh, But the problem here is that they don't wait around for the right answer. Instead, they decide at the end of verse 3, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he, or actually it in the original, uh, may go with us and uh, save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, this might look like a very holy thing to have been doing. Let us bring out uh, the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. It all appears really holy, but actually it's not. Uh, The leaders of Israel really ought to have been repenting and crying out to God for mercy. Uh, But instead, they decide to wail out the Ark. And what's basically happening here is that they are trying to manipulate God. Uh, They are treating the ark like a kind of a 
lucky charm, uh, like a kind of lucky medallion, uh, maybe, that uh, they think will help them get what they want from God. Um, The ark, of course, was something that was very important to Israel. You can see what it looked like uh, there on the screen. It was a sort of uh, portable wooden box that that had been covered with gold. It was about uh, 3.5 feet long uh, by 2.5 feet high and wide. And this contained uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, So the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, which were given to God on Mount Sinai. And really the significance of the ark is that it symbolizes God's presence with his people. Uh, It was where Moses spoke with God and where God met with uh, Moses. And because God met with uh, uh, Moses, it was also where God met with his uh, people. It sort of symbolized God's covenant and God's relationship with his people Israel. So this was really a holy object that symbolizes God's presence. Uh, The idea is really that what happens to the ark happens to God. It's where God dwells. And so the uh, Israelites bring the ark into their camp there in verse 5. All the Israelites raise this great uh, shout, thinking victory is guaranteed. Meanwhile, over in the Philistine camp, they're all shaking in their boots. So uh, verse 7, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in, in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So what do we expect at this point in the story? Well, surely we expect that the Israelites will win, right? After all, they have the ark, they have the presence of God with them, and so surely God is going to defeat their enemies. Uh, But instead, uh, we read, the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And so this was a disaster. The casualties are huge. Hopni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are killed. And worst of all, the ark is captured. The presence of God from their midst has been captured. And see just what a huge disaster this was uh, because it's spelt out for us in the rest of the passage. This uh, messenger goes running back. Uh, Eli, well, he's old and blind and is uh, waiting by the side of the road. Uh, he hears everything that's been going on. And when he hears that the ark of God has been captured, he falls backwards and dies. The high priest of Israel dies. There in verse 18 it says his neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and heavy. Uh, Next up is uh, Phineas's wife, his daughter-in-law. She also hears that the ark has been captured and the shock seems to send her into some kind of premature labor. The baby lives but she does not. However, she gives the boy a name. It's there in verse 21, Ichabod, which either means no glory or it means where is the glory. It's hard for us to capture the magnitude of this, but the author helps us by repeating it twice. The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. It's as if God himself has been defeated and he has now left his people Israel. The glory of Israel was God. So when it says the glory has departed from Israel, it's basically saying God has gone. God has left. A terrible disaster. Actually, the only disaster in the whole of the Old Testament, which is worse than this, was the capture of Jerusalem and the temple and the uh, Babylonian exile um, later on. So this was a really terrible disaster. 
And the lesson for us, I think, is the, surely the danger of trying to manipulate God. Are there ways that we try and manipulate God for our own ends? I think many of us can fall into the trap of thinking that God is impressed with our religious activity. We think that the more we pray, the more we take communion, the more we attend church, the more we read our Bibles, the more good works we do, the more charitable organizations we are involved with, uh, that the more likely it is that God will respond to us. But isn't that really very similar to what the Israelites were doing here? They thought that if only we take the ark into battle, then our victory is guaranteed. This religious object, uh, if we treat that that well, that's going to do the work for us. But actually, they discovered to their cost that God cannot be manipulated. There's no magic uh, formula that obliges him to act. I think this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he warned us in this Sermon on the Mount about praying with our many words. Uh, using our prayers or our flowery language or the length of our prayers maybe to try and impress God uh, like the pagan religions around us. But the bottom line is that we don't have to try and manipulate God. As Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, God is a loving Heavenly Father who knows what we need before we ask. And therefore, we can come to him in prayer with a straightforward sim simplicity, trusting in him. Uh, here, back in 1 Samuel, we see, in fact, that God is so committed to not being manipulated that he will even allow his people to be defeated and his own name to be brought into disgrace rather than allow his people to continue on in a false relationship with him or a wrong view of who he is. I wonder if this has ever occurred to you, that God will actually allow you to be disappointed with him if it wakes you up to the true God that he really is. I wonder if this has ever happened to you, that God has allowed um, you to be disappointed with him in some way, perhaps, yet it has actually woken you up uh, to the kind of God that he really is, a God that is actually much more glorious and infinitely more powerful than any God that you can control. See, God loves to poke holes in our wrong views about him. And one of those wrong views is that we can conform God to the kind of God that we want. That didn't work for the Israelites, and it won't work for us either. God is God, and he cannot be manipulated or controlled by us. And God will maintain this even to the point of us being disappointed with him and it looking like that he has been defeated. And so that's a really the first thing that we see here. We cannot manipulate God. But then we need to move on because we also see here the futility of opposing God. And this brings us on to chapter 5, where the scene changes. So remember that the uh, ark has been captured by the Philistines. And now in chapter 5, verse 1, we read that the Philistines take the ark from Israel and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, in the ancient world, of course, the belief was that battles weren't ever just between armies. Uh, they were also between gods. And so this was really easy. The god of the Israelites has been defeated by the god of the Philistines, and uh, so they place his ark in Dagon's temple. It's a sort of act of homage, really, uh, as if the one true god is uh, now playing homage to an idol, uh, bowing down 
before him, a sort of trophy on the wall of Dagon, if you like. However, things don't quite work out as the Philistines expect. And we can follow the action in verses 1 to 5. In verse 2, they place the ark in the temple of Dagon. In verse 3, they wake up early the next morning only to find that Dagon has um, fallen over during the night. It's meant to be highly ironic. The end of verse 3 there says that the people of Ashton Dodd took Dagon and put him back in his place. What kind of God needs his people to come along and uh, help get him back on his feet again? Well, clearly Dagon does. Uh, This is what the Bible says about idols elsewhere, of course, that they have hands, but they cannot act. They're only pieces of rock or pieces of wood, mere idols made by people. Often uh, the idols in our lives seem so great and so powerful as we battle against them. But yet this shows us that God is greater than any idol. Uh, God alone is powerful. God alone is worthy of our worship and praise. And then what happens next is really meant to be sheer comedy. Uh, They manage to get poor old Dagon back on on his feet, but then they all wake up the next morning and it's, oh no, Dagon has fallen over again. Uh, But this time he's flat on his face as if he's worshipping God uh, and his hands have broken off. It's a bit like a a boxer uh, who keeps on getting knocked out. Let's hope Dagon doesn't lose his head. Uh, But oh no, Dagon's head has broken off too. Poor old Dagon is really not in a good way at all. I think we can begin to get some sense of the sheer comedy that the uh, Israelites thought of what was going on here. But there's a really serious point under it, which is that the Lord God Almighty is the one who has power. It's futile to oppose him, for his power is so great, and he alone is mighty. God may look defeated, God may look disgraced, but actually he is not. He is powerful to defeat his enemies. Of course, for the Philistines, it was no laughing matter. Uh, We read in verse 6 that the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them uh, and afflicted them with tumors. Uh, We learn uh, later on that there was something going on with uh, rats as well, and so it uh, seems like it was maybe some kind of bubonic plague. Again, there's uh, meant to be a heavy dose of irony here. Uh, In the ancient world, someone's hands of course, signified their strength. Uh, Your hands signified your ability to act. But here, of course, Dagon has no hands. Dagon's hands are lying on the floor. Um, He's only an an idol. He has no ability to act. But yet God, well, he still has his hands, uh, as the rest of the passage makes clear. And so verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. Uh, Verse 7, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. Verse 9, the Lord's hand was against that city. And there's a a number of other uh, hand references too uh, as we go through this. I'm sure you can probably see the main idea. The Lord is the one who has his hands. The Lord is the one who has the power and strength and ability to act. You can oppose God, but it's foolish to do so. Because of God's hand, Uh, he is all-powerful and all-sufficient and the one who is able to act decisively in the world. If you like, God has the upper hand while Dagon has no hands at all. And so there's an important reminder here for us, which is really all about the power and the self-sufficiency of God. I wonder if you've ever realized that God does not need us 
very often we like to think that God needs us. God needs us to serve him. God needs us to defend him. God needs us to speak for him. God needs us to be looking out for his interests in the world. But this reminds us that uh, God does not actually need us at all. God is self-sufficient. Of course, it's true that God might choose to use us. It's true, actually, that God wants to use us. God desires to use us. But it's not true that God needs us. God is all-powerful and completely self-sufficient to act on his own. We see that really clearly here in in this uh, story. There's no mention of Samuel. There's no Israelite king or Israelite army or Israelite soldiers on the the move. Everything that happens is actually God on his own, a demonstration of his self-sufficiency and great power. God does not need us. God does not need us either individually or as a church to accomplish his will. Of course, he may choose to use us, and it's wonderful when God does, but he does not need us, and it's vitally important for us to remember that. Maybe especially at a time of transition, uh, we need to remember the power of God. God is the one who is self-sufficient, and uh, he is able to accomplish his will in the world. As I was uh, writing this, I was writing while I was looking after my uh, youngest daughter, Lucy, who was unwell, and I was sort of um, um, struggling um, to do my prep uh, in the midst of all that, and I thought, how great that God doesn't actually need me. Uh, Of course, I still need to work hard, but at the end of the day, God doesn't need me. He's not reliant on my personality, my gifts, or, or my skill, or anything else to work in the world. He may choose to use me, which is wonderful, Um, But he's more than capable, actually, of uh, working on his own. And that's uh, a great truth. Then how are we to respond to this great and powerful God? And uh, this moves us on to look at the response of the Philistines here. And uh, this is mostly in chapter 6. So one of the things really interesting about the Philistines here is actually how much they know about God. I wonder if you uh, noticed that. Uh, So they, they know God's name. That's uh, chapter 6, verse 1, that he is the Lord, the God of Israel. Um, They know that their guilt needs to be atoned for in chapter 6, verse 3, which is why they send this offering back with the uh, ark of five gold tumors and uh, all the gold rats. Uh, They even say that they want to give glory to Israel's God in verse 5. And they seem to know all about the events of the Exodus in verse 6. And then they've even witnessed this incredible miracle with these cows uh, in chapter 6, verse 7 to 12. Um, briefly, the whole point here of the cows is that the Philistines need to know whether the plagues they are experiencing are from God or not. And so they basically come up with this test, which is heavily stacked against the cows pulling their cart back to Israel. So these are milk cows, which have never been yoked to a cart uh, previously, and so they wouldn't be used to doing that. And then their calves are actually all penned up in the opposite Direction, And so this test is sort of heavily stacked against the cows going up the road towards Israel. But yet, when we come to verse 12, we read that the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, uh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. And so the author's point is that this ought to have been a no-brainer for the Philistines. It was all clear evidence for God's power and who God was. Dagon, well, he's lying face down in his temple, presumably. Uh, The plague of the tumors and the rats is clearly from God. The cows have gone lowing all the way up the the road. Uh, It's been proved beyond doubt. 
but yet the Philistines still refuse to repent and worship God. When we come to the next chapter, we see that they're quite happy uh, to go off to war against Israel again uh, a few years later. So don't continue in opposition to God. If you're someone here uh, this morning and you aren't a Christian yet, how much evidence do you need? How much evidence do you need? Here, the Philistines had tons of evidence, but yet they still didn't believe. How much evidence do we need? Perhaps for some of us, there's a lesson here this morning. Don't oppose God. Don't continue to defy him, but come to trust in him for yourself. There's also a last lesson for us here this morning, which is the importance of honoring God. And so again, the scene uh, shifts in chapter 6, verse 13. And now we find ourselves among the people of Beth Shemesh, who are harvesting their crops. And here we really see two groups of people. Um, First of all, we meet those who rejoice. It's this lovely, tranquil, bucolic scene. Suddenly the people of Beth Shemesh hear the lowing of the cows. They they lift up their eyes and and they see the ark coming back home to, to Israel. And they rejoice at the sight. Uh, the ark was coming home, uh, so they're filled with joy. Did this mean that the glory was returning to Israel? Then in verse 14 to 18, uh, the ark comes to a halt, and the people make uh, sacrifices and uh, burnt offerings to God. And it would be really great if the whole story just ended there uh, in verse uh, 18. The ark is uh, happily home, and everybody is rejoicing. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Because we need to read on to verse 19, where we meet a new group of people who are those who die. So, verse 19, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And so, what is happening here? Well, we're told that 70 people die, and they were struck down by the Lord. Why did they die? Well, the original text is actually not 100% clear, but the most likely explanation seems to be that they looked inside the ark. Uh, The inhabitants of Beth Shemesh were all Levites. That means they were sort of a special class of priests who were were tasked with uh, moving uh, holy objects uh, like the ark. Uh, Therefore, they ought to have known Numbers 4 verse 20, which made clear that someone who looked inside the ark would be struck down. They ought to have known that. But yet it seems as if some of them didn't treat God as holy. They looked into the ark and so were struck down. Now, I wonder if this was basically a group that just took God too lightly. Uh, Yes, they believed in God. Yes, they were kind of glad that the ark was back in Israel. But yet they didn't really treat God with the awe and the respect that he Deserved, And so they casually open up the ark and uh, they decide to take a peek inside. And all of this leads us to the key question, really, of verse 20. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And I think as we begin to draw things to a close, this is really the key question that this passage poses for us. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? holy God. God's uh, holiness is his difference to us. God's holiness is his otherness, uh, his moral purity, his white-hot love of all that is good, and the fact that he's completely unblemished and opposed to everything which is sinful and evil. 
I think God's holiness is often something that's very hard for us to really conceptualize or to get a handle on. Um, perhaps the best we could do would be a combination of something like radiation uh, that causes great fear um, combined with a moral goodness maybe that's uh, deeply appealing or deeply attractive. Now, for many of us, we may not think much about God's holiness in the average week, but yet it's a huge theme in the Bible. Um, we maybe even question the idea of a God who would strike people down uh, for looking inside his special box. But I think this whole passage is actually designed um, to challenge some of our wrong views of God. Uh, if we worship a God who always agrees with us, and who's exactly like us, and who can't ever challenge us, then I think we need to question whether we're actually worshipping the real, true God at all. See, the Israelites discovered in chapter 4 that God couldn't be manipulated or presumed upon. The Philistines discovered in chapter 5 that God couldn't be mocked or opposed. And now we're back in Israelite territory, and we discover that God cannot be treated lightly, but must be treated with honour and respect, and awe. See if there's one clear message from these chapters. I think it's that God is not a comfortable God. He may be loving and merciful and gracious, which is great, but that does not mean that God is always comfortable for us. What if God really is holy? What if he really is not like us? Who then can stand in his presence? I wonder if you've ever considered those kinds of questions. Well, the good news of the gospel is that God has indeed made a way for us to stand before a holy God. And not just to stand before him, actually, but to have access to his presence with confidence. Um, Hebrews 10 and verse 10 reminds us, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If we have been made holy by Jesus, then we can stand with confidence before a holy God. Um, these are things that we'll be remembering at communion in a few moments. That if we've trusted in Jesus' death for us, if we've received his holiness, and our lack of holiness has been placed on him instead, um, then uh, we can have access to him. We can stand before a holy God. It's really very straightforward indeed. Jesus dies in our place. We get his holiness. He takes our sin and wrongdoing. And so, how are we to treat God? Well, don't try to manipulate him. Don't try to oppose him. Rather, honor him and trust in him, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what God has done for you this morning. What ought to have happened after Israel's sin and defeat in chapter 4? Well, if you know your Bibles well, you will know that God's people ought to have gone into exile. According to the law in the book of Deuteronomy, the punishment for rebelling against God in the way which they did was exile. But what actually happens in this story? Well, what actually happens is that God's people stay in the land. They stay in the place of God's blessing, and something else goes into exile instead. God himself goes into exile in the ark. God himself is subjected to defeat and disgrace and even weakness for the sake of his people. Uh, he goes into exile in the land of the Philistines. And what did God do while he was there? Well, he defeated his enemies by his 
great power and then returned uh, victorious later on. Ring at any bells? It ought to, because this is the way that God always works. When Jesus died on the cross, he went into exile for us. He took the punishment that we deserved, and while he, he was there, he showed his great power, defeating his enemies and emerging three days later victorious from the grave. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, we can stand before a holy God because Jesus went into exile on the cross for us. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to give thanks for this passage from your word and all that it has to teach us. We give thanks that it helps us to see that you are glorious, that you are powerful, that you are holy, and that you are self-sufficient, but also that you care for us personally, and uh, you have done all that is necessary for us to stand before you with confidence forever. We want to give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who went into exile on the cross for us to take our, our sins, to defeat our enemies of sin and death and hell, and who then rose victorious on the third day. Father, we want to give thanks for all of these things, and uh, we ask them now in Jesus' name. Amen.